Welcome to this late hour. A look at the world through the lens of scripture. I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Welcome to Good Friday, friends, the day of our Lord's crucifixion. As we ponder this scripture and think of the work that Christ has finished on our behalf, let us also remember the work that we have yet to finish in the Great Commission. Today I will be speaking with Douglas Cobb of the Finishing Fund concerning their work toward finishing the Great Commission, as well as about his book called And Then the End Will Come. Let us get right into the interview, and may God bless you on this Good Friday. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Uh, it's my great privilege and honor to welcome Douglas Cobb to the podcast. He's the author of And Then the End Will Come, the completion of the Great Commission and nine other clues that Jesus is coming soon. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Casey, it's great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me on. It's great to have you. So 
Uh, for those in the audience who are not familiar with Douglas Cobb, who is Douglas Cobb? Doug Cobb is um, married to Gina for 41 years. We have three adult children, two grandchildren, grandsons, and one grandchild on the way. Uh, we don't know boy or girl on that one yet. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, we've been part of a church here, Southeast Christian Church in Louisville for 30 some years. Uh, I've been an elder at that church off and on for about the last 15 years or so, teach a Sunday school class there, have done that for about 20 years. So um, my career was in business and startups and growth capital, growth companies. And um, I mean, that was a great career, but now I, I get to spend most of my time on ministry stuff, which is a, a lot more fun. Now this, uh, what we'll be talking about today kind of all started uh, with the finishing the task ministry. And I was wondering if you could explain for our audience, what is finishing the task? And then additionally, what is uh, the difference between that and the finishing fund? Finishing the task is a ministry that was created in 2005 by a fellow named Paul Eshelman, who is my mentor and really the, the guy who led me into many of the things I get to work on now. Paul had been for many years the leader of the Jesus Film Project inside of Campus Crusade for Christ and was one of the leaders really of the world kind of evangelistic movement. Um, a number of folks came together and asked him to create Finishing the Task to mobilize the global church toward the possibility of completing the Great Commission in our generation. Um, you know, the perception was, is that we were close, that the 2000 year anniversary of the, you know, the uh, death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus was at hand. And, you know, it was about time we got this, this done. And so FTT was created as a network of ministries to raise awareness and to mobilize folks toward the goal of disciples in every nation and has had an enormous impact over the course of the 17 years since then has helped mobilize the, you know, the church around the world to um, an, an amazing results in engaging um, unengaged people groups and other activities in the Great Commission. I became involved in that as a volunteer, a board member, um, a, you know, speaker at some conferences and stuff. Um, and over time, um, you know, began to give personally toward uh, projects to take the gospel to people groups that nobody had ever been to before. In 2014 and 2015, my wife and I were able to give to help some projects in India and Nepal and Nigeria. Um, got to hear and see the stories of the first people in the history of the world from their people groups to become followers of Jesus and I was just hooked. I just, I loved it. It just grabbed my heart to think that we could be, you know, having an instrumental role in, in seeing the Great Commission propagated and, and maybe completed in our generation. The finishing fund grew out of that. It kind of out of my background in startups and growth companies, um, you know, it looks, the finishing fund looks a lot like a venture capital fund for this Great Commission effort. And um, it has been a really, really fun, you know, way for me to to have a front row seat to a lot of this work over the last, um, you know, four or five years. Right. Yeah. You know, I've been really excited just personally of discovering this. And I, I think, I guess I was like really glad it's not just me. 
because you know it seems like a lot of people actually don't realize what's going on as far as re- relation to the Great Commission and, and uh, the mission work. And uh, my wife and I, you know, personally uh, partnering with the UUPG fund and just seeing and hearing some of the stories of what's going on have been really exciting. And I was really uh, happy to showcase a lot of that stuff last season. You know, if you listen to the researchers, uh, Barna, they'll tell you that maybe one person in six in the pews of churches really understands what the Great Commission is all about. And um, most people, in my experience, don't know um, that the finish that, that, that the Great Commission has a definitive goal, disciples in every nation. Most people don't know that, you know, the nations uh, are people groups, not countries, not France and Germany and China, but these um, people groups that are scattered around the world. Um, Most people don't know where we stand in the effort to make disciples among all these nations. And so there's just a lot of things that people aren't aware of. And I think because of that, they're also not aware of how uh, amazing the work that's happening now around the world is how God's kingdom is just exploding in places where Jesus' name has never been uh, heard before. So it's it's a pretty exciting thing when you kind of catch a, a glimpse of this. It, you suddenly start to have a kind of whole new view about how the how how the world is going and and how the kingdom of God is 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 doing in it. Yeah, it's been it's been helpful because. For me personally, I often can get really caught up in some of the, the darker things going on. So when yeah. I step back and just kind of take a 60,000 foot view and, and look at what God's doing and that he's still sovereign, he's still at work. It's just, it's such a relief in a sense. Um, it's something to celebrate and to, to give joy and thanks to the Lord for, despite a lot of the other things going on. Well, and you know, it is, um, it is uh, eschatologically extremely significant, in my opinion. Um, you know, in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus' disciples asked him, when are you coming back? You know, it's in verse three. Uh, that's my paraphrased version, but that's what they ask him. When are you coming back? He gives a long answer. It's all through chapter 24. It goes into chapter 25. He tells some parables. But in verse 14 of chapter 24, He answers them this way. He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, every ethnos, and then the end will come. And so um, I'm persuaded that the, you know, the effort to complete the Great Commission is not just a matter of obedience, although it is that, and, you know, that should probably be sufficient. But I think it opens the door to Jesus return in a way that, um, you know, I'm, I don't personally think has been possible up till now. And so, you know, I'm highly motivated by the idea that not only may, might we be the generation that sees the great commission completed, wouldn't that be exciting, but maybe the generation that sees Jesus come back too. And, you know, that would be just un, unimaginably great. So I think we live in in very, very, very significant times. And sadly, I, I think most people aren't really aware about that. Well, I'm with you. It's the whole reason this show exists. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, you know, just looking around um, and, and seeing the signs of the times uh, is one of the reasons why I, I started this whole thing. In fact, one of the, the main driving factors, similar to kind of what you're doing, but I remember reading about, I think it was from 
uh, Wycliffe or Wycliffe, however you say the name, uh, with mm-hmm. the Bible translations and how close they were getting to getting uh, a translation in every language and just thinking about, well, wait a minute, that, that seems awfully significant in relation to the Great Commission. And then I had heard you give a couple interviews on a few different uh, podcasts and shows and realized, wow, so this is the same thing I've kind of been saying, uh, you know, as far as this is a really big deal, but no one seems to be paying attention to it. In fact, uh, I'm assuming this is kind of one of the things that uh, prompted you to write and then the end will come. And I just wanted to kind of push into that more. Like what, what was sort of the catalyst of that? And, and could you just give us a little overview of like what the book is digging into? Absolutely. Um, so uh, it, it won't surprise you to hear that sort of the, the beginning point was Matthew 24, 14. And, you know, my, as I got more involved in the great commission effort, understanding, you know, what I understood the implications of that to be from that verse Right. And, um, you know, as kind of a Bible nerd, a guy who just likes to, you know, see what the Bible has to say, I I started to look for other, um, you know, places where the other other clues that might be found in the scriptures that also would confirm that we're living in the season of Jesus return and sort of just began to Google around about that and look for things as I read the Bible and that is what led to, you know, the other nine clues that I talk about in the in the book. So kind of the the forming principle was, um, you know, hey, I, I think we're getting close to finishing the Great Commission. And I think Jesus said he'd come back when we finished. And then, oh, by the way, there's these other nine things that I found that seem to similarly indicate either that, you know, the conditions that the Bible describes of the last days are in place or, uh, you know, other things that need to, you know, seem to biblically need to happen are taking place or soon will. And all of that was really from my own entertainment education until I was sitting at my desk one uh, day um, about 18 months ago. And God said, you know, you really need to write this down. And, um, you know, he doesn't always speak to me so directly. And in fact, that would be pretty unusual, but it was pretty evident that that's what happened. And so I said, okay, and, you know, just started the process of writing a book, uh, you know, about these 10, these 10 clues. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people these days are very discouraged, very disoriented. You know, the world's filled with difficulty, um, you know, whether it's political or COVID or, you know, whatever you want to point to cultural, plenty of reasons to be discouraged, to be disoriented. And I think people need to, you know, do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, you know, fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, the unseen coming kingdom of God, and, you know, be excited and encouraged about that, not discouraged by, you know, the, the mess that the world is, um, is turning into. That's well said. Uh, what, so in, in kind of approaching the book, uh, just for the Bible nerds out there, okay, <laughs> what, what is your understanding of what sound biblical interpretation looks like and how did that sort of influence your approach to writing the book? Well, I'm not sure what you're asking me for. You know, the basic principles, you know, try to understand the context uh, of, uh, of things, try to make sure you, as best you can, understand them in, you know, in the light of how the original hearers would have understood them, you know, make sure that you you know, to the extent that you're able, have an understanding of kind of the original language meaning, the potential variants on that, you know, look at different translations to help you capture the, the rounded meaning of, 
of scripture. Those would all be things that I would, you know, hope I would put to work in, uh, in that prayer, um, you know, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the, the meaning of, of things that might be tricky or, or difficult. So all of the above and probably things I haven't mentioned as well. Okay, that's fair. And how would you best describe your eschatological position or your view of the end? And uh, additionally, why do you hold to that position? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, you know, premillennial, um, you know, uh, my, my eschatology is premillennial. Um, I, you know, believe in a literal rapture, uh, at, you know, before the, the tribulation. I believe in a literal seven-year tribulation. I believe in a literal thousand-year um, millennial reign of Christ. And so I, I would be pretty, you know, pretty classically pre, pre-mill in my, in my eschatology. Okay, well, let's let's come back to kind of the the crux of this whole thing, which is the Great Commission. Yep. And I mean, we could, I think, agree that was Christ's most important task for the church. Just to the layman out there, how, what would it look like for this to be fulfilled? And how close would you say that we are to that fulfillment? Well, um, you know, that's a, that, let me give you a moderately detailed answer to that. Um, sure. A great model of the Great Commission that I have um, adopted from Rick Warren and uh, who now leads finishing the task is what he calls the three B's of the Great Commission. Good Southern Baptist pastor, right? So sermon has to have three points and they have to alliterate. So three B's of the Great Commission. The believers in every people group on earth, that, that would be first B. The Bible in every language on earth and a body of Christ, a church in every place on earth, in every neighborhood, every suburb, every village uh, around the world. And, you know, Rick's view is, you know, it's not a perfect model, but it's a good model that says, you know, when we've reached the place where there are believers in every people group and the Bible's in every language and there's churches in every place, we, you know, will have pretty high confidence that we're, um, you know, at the finish line of the of the Great Commission. I think that we are only a couple of years away from the first B finish line, from seeing the first believers in every people group on earth. The, the list that I work from is published by Finishing the Task. We talked about that ministry. And that list now down is down, down to just a few hundred people groups that, as far as we know, nobody's ever been to uh, with the gospel. We're engaging groups at the rate of, you know, hundreds a year. So even with some of these last ones being really tricky, I think we're really close to seeing that that goal accomplished. The great people who work on Bible translation have set 2033 as their goal for some Bible in every language on earth, all the 7,200 languages, I think it is, plus or minus, that are spoken on the on the planet. So, you know, they're a little further out, uh, 10 or 11 years, but only, only a couple of years further out. The church planning folks have similarly set, you know, goals of 5 million new churches or, you know, some n- number of millions and different networks have different deadlines. The soonest one is 2025, GACX, Global Alliance for Church Multiplication, you know, is on a five-year, uh, on a multi-year, 5 million church effort, and they've set 2025 as their hope for completion date. So whether whichever of the, the the Bs you want to pick, we're really, really close. The one I work on through the finishing fund, that first B, the 
first believers, the first disciples in every people group, um, I think we're only, like I say, a year or two out by God's grace from seeing that accomplished. Yeah. And that's, it's really exciting to really think about that. The frustration I know I've run into personally is a lot of times when discussing either the great commission or the end of the age, the return of Christ, there's sort of an eye roll on the side. And, oh yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. They've been saying that for years and mm-hmm. uh, it just seems, and, you know, and I expect a certain <laughs> amount of skepticism from the world uh, with these things and, and even mockery and, and the, even the Bible addresses that issue. But it does seem to me many believers have a certain amount of skepticism when it comes to the return of Christ or the Great Commission being fulfilled in our lifetimes. I mean, I, I've brought this up to believers you know, about how close we are with the Great Commission. And there's just sort of a blank stare. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, why do you think this is? I mean, what's behind this sort of skeptical attitude and how do we respond to it? I'm sure that you know, there's multiple reasons for it. I think the enemy does not want people to be aware of these things because he doesn't want us to be prepared for them. So I think there's, you know, clearly a, you know, a demonic aspect to this, you know, lack of interest and lack of awareness. I think part of it is the problem of affluence in the West that we live in such a rich, free, safe place beyond the wildest dreams of, you know, 99.9% of the people who've ever lived um, that, you know, how could heaven be better than this? How could, you know, the return of Christ be better? It's going to be a lot better, but I think a lot of people are reluctant uh, probably for that reason. Uh, I think a lot of people just don't understand that there is a great commission finish line. So they, you know, they don't really feel aware about that and therefore not mo- not motivated uh, about it. So, you know, all of those things, I think, come together around that lack of um, excitement and, and awareness. It's, you know, uh, it, it's, it's obvious that, you know, for most of history, for all of history, it's been the safe bet that Jesus isn't coming back soon, right? Uh, it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come. That's exactly what Peter talks about in you know, Second uh, Peter chapter three, where's this promise of his coming? You know, the world continues as it has from the beginning. And I, I think believers fall into that trap too. In my book, chapter one is titled, He is Coming Back. Um, and I just wanted, you know, to begin the book with, you know, the solid ground that not only did Jesus promise that he was coming back many, many times, and not only did all the New Testament writers, virtually all of them, write about the return of Christ, but it's prophesied in many places in the Old Testament too. So, you know, if the Bible is true, and we, I believe that it is, there's no question that one of these days he is coming back. And then the question becomes, you know, could, can we know anything about that? And could we be the generation? And that's really, you know, what the rest of the book uh, explores, but he is coming back. I'm as confident of that as I am sitting here talking to you right now. And I personally believe it's going to be going to be soon. Well, I'm definitely in agreement with you, which is why we're doing this show. Um, (laughs) uh, So last season, uh, one of the things I I narrowed in on was the importance of understanding the book of Genesis as literal history. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that many of our views related to Genesis affect our views of the end times. In fact, you just talked about Peter. He refers back to the flood. He refers back to creation. Um, And so I just was highlighting a lot of those issues and how we see a lot of mockery and sort of unbelief related to that, especially even in the church. And so I was wondering, do you see a correlation 
with uh, the very literal view, sort of the, the seven day creation week and the end times. And then additionally, is there significance in us approaching 6,000 years of biblical history in relation to the return of Christ? I think there probably is. Um, it, it's not a strictly clearly biblical idea, but it's certainly an idea that has support in scripture and that an awful lot of, um, of thinkers, both Jewish and Christian over the centuries have held. And, and the idea is that the history of the world will parallel the creation account, the creation week. So there'll be six periods followed by a seventh Sabbath period, six days of creation followed by a Sabbath day in the creation account, six probably thousand-year periods followed by a thousand-year millennial Sabbath in, you know, world uh, world history, uh, biblical world history. And so I think the, um, you know, I, I think that's a pretty strong um, clue that is supported in my mind by the prophecies that I find in Hosea 5 and 6 that seem to indicate that um, from the time of the departure of the Messiah to his return will be two days. Again, I would interpret that as 2,000-year periods and seems to promise a third day uh, where uh, the Messiah will live with his people, the the Jewish people. And so I, I think that um, 6,000 year model is, in, is uh, you know, given some credibility is substantiated by that prophecy in Hosea chapter five and chapter six. When is the, the actual, do we have kind of an idea on when we're actually going to hit that 2,000 year line in the sand, if you will? We don't. Uh, I, I don't think, um, I, you know, we know within a few years, I, I think, you know, the earliest estimates I've seen for the, the year of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the earliest I've seen maybe is 28 AD. I don't think I've seen anything earlier than that. The latest and the, probably the most commonly held view is 33 AD. That would be the kind of the traditional view. Um, you know, I have not devoted enough time and attention to it to know what I would say for sure, um, you know, that, to make a strong statement about that, whatever exactly the year, you know, we're, we're within a few years of that one way or the other, even if it's the 2033 date, uh, that's only what now 11 years away. And so, um, you know, we're in the season of that, even if we can't know precisely, you know, to the year. So a common response among believers regarding Christ's return is to quote the verse from Matthew 24, 36, no one knows the day nor hour. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the kind of common responses I'll hear is, well, we don't need to worry about when Christ will return. It says here, no one knows the day or hour. In fact, I spent a good deal of time last season sort of looking at that in context saying, well, actually, guys, he says no one knows, but he also says that's the very reason we should be paying attention and looking. And so that's actually not an accurate view. Now, one of the interesting things you do in the book is bring this whole idea of no one knows the day or hour <laughs> up, but that you make the case in your book, it may in fact be a Jewish idiom. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you could explain a bit about what that means and why you think that. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's one of the more interesting things I discovered as I was researching uh, the book. I really enjoy, um, you know, sort of messianic Jewish 
Bible scholarship. Um, and, you know, there's some folks out there that do a really great job of helping modern Western Christians understand the Old Testament roots and implications of our faith, right? I, I just really find that fascinating um, and have been enjoying that for a number of years. Um, one instance of that is the uh, the thread of understanding how Jesus has or will fulfill each of the seven feasts um, that were ordained by God for Israel in the Old Testament. So God ordained these seven celebrations, uh, you know, four in the spring, three in the fall every year, Passover, uh, first for, uh, uh, unleavened bread, first fruits, uh, Pentecost, uh, in the spring, and then, um, uh, you know, the Rosh Hashanah, uh, Feast of Trumpets, um, and the, um, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Day of Atonement in the fall, the three in the fall. And so um, what's fascinating is, is you begin to realize that Jesus has, has fulfilled in his first coming at least four of those seven feasts. I, I personally think he has fulfilled five of them, but I, you know, I'm not picking a fight with anybody about that, but clearly four, you know, so he was crucified on Passover. He was buried on unleavened bread. He was raised on first fruits and he sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And so clearly uh, Jesus has fulfilled those, those four. I personally believe that it's likely that he was born during the Feast of Tabernacles, which just would be beautifully symmetrical, right? What does John say? Um, you know, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, right? He made his dwelling uh, among us. So it would be a, you know, a very symmetrical for that to be the case. Some people don't think that one will be fulfilled until the second coming. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I get the, we can't know for sure. But what that leaves is two or three festivals to be fulfilled um, at Jesus' second coming. Uh, and I personally think those will be fulfilled in two events of the second coming, that the rapture is likely to take place on the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, Paul talks about at the last trumpet, right? Uh, these things will happen. Right. Uh, and, and that the final return of Christ will be at, um, on the Day of Atonement, which has historically been when the Jews expected the Messiah to come to uh, take away the sin of the, of the people. Now, that's all in preparation for answering your question. I discovered in the course of writing the book that that expression that Jesus used, um, no one knows the day or the hour, may be an idiom that the Jews used to describe the festival of, um, uh, of, of trumpets. Trumpets is unique among the Jewish feasts in that it begins on the first day of the month. It's the only one that does so. And so uh, the, it's a Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. It requires the observation of the new moon before the month can begin. And so um, they had a very elaborate set of um, rituals and processes to determine that the moon had been spotted so that, okay, the month has begun. We can begin celebrating the holiday. And until those things were accomplished, until those processes were fulfilled, they would speak about the holiday, it is said, by saying no one knows the day or the hour when it will begin. Uh, it required the, you know, a witness to actually see the, the moon. And so it's intriguing, at least, that Jesus may have been saying to them, 
uh, hey, you know, uh, look for me on the Feast of Trumpets. And, um, you know, that's likely when the, the rapture will take place. What's fascinating is, is the Feast of Trumpets is celebrated over two days. And that has some historical roots to it, um, basically so that people in the in the uh, hinterlands, you know, wouldn't miss the holiday. They stretched it out to be a two-day celebration. And so it is literally true that you can both expect him to come on uh, trumpets for the rapture and still not know the day or the hour on which he will come, because it could be on the first day or the second day, and it could be any time on the first day or any time on the second day. So, um, you know, I, I think that is a really interesting you know, kind of Jewish light on that expression. And, you know, it wouldn't be the first time that people had read something in the Bible that they thought meant one thing and actually maybe meant something almost entirely different. So, uh, like I say, I'm not, you know, sure that this is true, but I discovered it and found enough, in, you know, people talking about it that I thought it was worth bringing up as maybe one more interesting fact about the, you know, the possible soon return of Christ. I mean, there's certainly a good amount of evidence you've provided there in the book, especially as it relates to Jesus fulfilling these other festival days. Yeah. And yeah. It's hard for me to imagine that he's not somehow going to fulfill trumpets and uh, atonement, right? And right. If, if you think about, so, okay, what are the, how might that happen? And I guess you could come up with a lot of ways, but the simplest way would be that he, the rapture would happen on one and the second coming would happen on the other. And I think that the evidence shows that that may in fact be exactly what, uh, you know, God has in, in mind. So, um, you know, I may be wrong about that. I I'm careful to say, you know, I'm not a prophet and I, I understand based on, you know, I've tried to understand these things as best I can. I could be wrong, but it sure seems like a strong connection to me. Right. I agree. Um, now let me make sure I understand is Rosh Hashanah and the Feast of Trumpets the same thing? Uh, it is. Okay. Uh, yeah. 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 Cause you know, our family, we've actually, you know, as, as Bible believing Christians, we don't necessarily look at these feast days as required by any means, but we've found right. that we have found there to be great joy and benefit in, in observing some of them because it has given us an opportunity to model for our children, just the way you can see Christ throughout all uh, the scriptures and yeah. how, you know, Passover, you know, we, we make a point to celebrate that th from a Christian perspective and how Christ yeah. was the Passover lamb and Rosh Hashanah. In fact, we've even got one of these little silly um, shofars, a really yeah. cheap, a really cheap one that does not work well. Yeah. We've always kind of, um, you know, we thought about this idea of, well, maybe he'll come uh, on the Rosh Hashanah because of the idea of using the trumpet and blowing the horn. And that's something yep. that definitely occurred to us. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I think that's great. You know, uh, it's certainly true that the New Testament comes to life the more you understand its rootedness in the Old Testament. So like uh, just one example that comes to mind, I've been teaching in my Sunday school class through the book of Luke and we're getting it near the end. But, um, you know, we, we looked at uh, the chapters that talk about the Holy Week in Jerusalem and, you know, how the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders were examining Jesus. You know, this is where they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes? You know, and they challenge him in a number of ways during that week. And, you know, when you begin to see that what's happening there is the same, is symbolically the same process of examination 
uh, to find if there was any flaw or fault in Jesus, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the same process that was taking place at that very same time in the temple as the Passover lambs are being examined to make sure they're suitable sacrifices. And you see how all of that is parallel and woven together and one helps you understand the other. I just think it brings the, the scriptures to life in a way that if you don't see those connections, you know, you, you're just going to miss. So I, I think it's beautiful stuff. Absolutely. Uh, now, if I know my Bible right, if I'm not mistaken, so the Last Supper would have been a, a Passover feast. Is that right? Yeah, people have a lot of, you know, debates about whether they did that on the right night, did they do it a night early? You know, did the Galileans celebrate it a different day? You know, there's, you can get as wound up as you want in trying to trace that down. It gets kind of complicated, but no question. Yes, that was intended to be the Passover Seder that they were, they were eating together. Which obviously adds a lot of significance to communion and taking the blood and the bread. And that's why it's, it is just so wonderful to think about the way God you know, it's telling this much larger story and just to see these little details throughout scripture. So, you know, um, one of my favorites in this genre is a, a brother named Arnold Fruchtenbaum. I got to hear him teach, gosh, a long time ago. And uh, he is a great Messianic Jewish scholar of the Old and New Testament. He taught me the idea that, um, you know, the, the rabbis of Jesus' day had identified three miracles that they believed only the Messiah would be able to perform. Um, the healing of a Jewish leper, the cleansing of a Jewish leper, uh, casting out a demon that made a person mute, uh, and restoring the sight of someone who had been born blind. Uh, and um, they had, you know, they saw those three signs as being clear messianic pr- miracles. They literally called them that, the messianic miracles. Well, of course, Jesus performs them all, right? Um, and when you begin to understand how significant those particular miracles were, then you begin to understand why in John, when he heals the man born blind, the, the, you know, the, the Jewish leaders go to such lengths to try to somehow undermine the credibility of that miracle because they know as a part of their tradition that if he did that thing, he has to be the Messiah and they don't want him to be the Messiah, right? So you remember all the, you know, was he really born blind? You know, what did he do to you? You know, he, you know, how did all of that, you know, back and forth, you know, and uh, the, the healing of a Jewish leper, you know, there's no record of a Jewish leper in the Bible ever having been healed. You know, there were Gentile lepers that were healed. Um, this, you know, the Assyrian general, what's his name? Uh, not Haman, um, but you know who I'm talking about. Uh, oh, and- Yes. Yeah, and but there's no Jew that's ever healed of leprosy. So in the Gospel of Luke, you know, Jesus meets this leper and heals him. And if you remember, what does he say? He says, don't tell anybody, but go to the priest and do what was required, you know, uh, in the Bible. There's a whole chapter in the law that prescribes what a Jew who is cleansed of leprosy has to do to demonstrate that he's been cleansed. As far as anybody knows, it had never been put into practice until that day. But when Jesus sends that man to that priest, he knows what's going to happen is that the word is going to spread all through Judea and Galilee uh, that this has happened because it never had happened before. And it it was a messianic miracle. The next scene in Luke is Jesus is in the house teaching uh, and he's surrounded by uh, Jewish leaders, you know, religious leaders. It's the 
scene where the men lower their friend through the roof to be healed. And remember, Jesus not only tells the man to get up and walk, heals him, but also forgives his sins. The crowd that is in that room is there specifically because they had heard that this man had performed one of the messianic miracles. And so, uh, again, it, you know, we can, you know, you get in these rabbit trails and you go down, you know, as far as you want, but it just brings the whole story to life when you understand the hidden meaning on some of these things that happen that, you know, we've just lost touch with, but, you know, um, are there in the old Testament. If you, if you know where to look. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He put all these signs and, you know, uh, milestones and waypoints in there for us so that we, we would be able to find our way. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you're kind of, you know, and and thank you for sharing that uh, aside because that's really, I know that's a little off the subject. Oh no, none of this is off the subject. I mean, (laughs) since, you know, the podcast is this late hour, but you know, one of the interesting things you're kind of also describing there, this tension, it's like they want to, kind of affirm or, or deny, okay, is this really the Messiah? But their inclination, typically, as we read in scripture, uh, from those who were, you know, the priests and the Pharisees was to try and make sure this could, this can't be, this just can't be, this can't be. And, you know, it's why I've kind of tried to keep an open hand with my eschatology, because I mean, I'm just a humble, you know, Christian guy trying to make sense of the world. And, who, you know, based on things we've already talked about, believe we're getting near the end, but it's not like no one's been wrong before in history. I mean, with yeah. the coming of, of Christ the first time and how, you know, I've talked about on, on the show, the, the three wise men and well, we don't know there were three, but the wise men and, and just how, when they came to Herod, he was completely baffled. And so was all of Jerusalem. Like, wait, yeah. what is, what's this? Yeah. And you know, that um, there's this sort of, living our lives and expecting things to always be that way. And yeah. so, you know, I'm, I'm not going to come on here and pretend like I've got everything figured out because uh, you know, when Christ first came, I mean, it was, it completely caught most people off guard. It did. I think they knew more than we sometimes see. Uh, I think they were aware that the prophecy of Daniel chapter nine of the 70 weeks that, you know, the first 69 of those weeks had reached completion and understood that that was a very important sign of the uh, coming of the Messiah. You know, if you read between the lines, I think you'll see in different places in the New Testament that in the gospels that um, the Jewish leaders were on the lookout for the Messiah. So, they send a delegation out to see John and remember what they ask him, you know, are you uh, the Messiah? Right. And John answers them, tells them that he's not. Well, why would they ask that question? You know, that wasn't just a random, you know, guess they were looking for someone who would fulfill that prophecy. And so, uh, you know, when they asked, uh, when Herod asks the scholars, where will the Messiah be born? They knew the answer to that question, right? They knew that it had to be in, Bethlehem. So I, I think they, I think there's probably, there was probably more awareness or should have been than, than uh, maybe we see, you know, today, but, you know, back to your earlier question, Casey, I, I, I'm not, wouldn't, would you be surprised if a lot of people who were alive then just assumed that that was an old myth, an old legend, you know, mm-hmm. God hadn't done anything for 400 years among the Jewish people, you know, why would we, expect anything to happen. I, I suspect many people were just going about their lives, living as if, you know, there's nothing but the material world and 
you know, probably a lot like many people today. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Right. Yeah. God is not active. Yep. Well, you, you touched on Daniel there. Uh, it's very brave of you. Obviously you do dive into this in the book and I've kind of danced around Daniel and uh, revelation. I like you, I spend a lot more time in the gospels and in the new Testament and, you know, some of the old Testament prophecies as well, but we can get very protective when I say we, the church about our eschatological view and, and especially as it relates to Daniel and revelation and tribulation and so on. But uh, in the book, I found your uh, kind of explanation of the abomination of desolation that, that Christ talks about there in Matthew 24, very fascinating. And I was wondering if you could kind of explain your view on that. And then in, in relation to that, based on what your view of the abomination of desolation, do you think, as many do, that the temple will be rebuilt a third time? before the end, given that view? I do. Uh, and I, I believe that there will be a yet to come fulfillment of the prophecy of the abomination that will take place in that new temple. Um, but, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book about the abomination is that you have to recognize that the abomination is not a thing. It's a group of things that are similar to one another. Uh, there was an abomination that took place when uh, the Greeks, you know, uh, sacrificed when the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes uh, sacrificed a pig on the altar. Um, that right. was an abomination. And then a lot of people think there was another one in 70 AD that the Romans erected the, you know, Roman standard in the Holy of Holies. And uh, that was considered an abomination. Uh, like we said, there'll be, I think, another one in the in the tribulation, uh, in that new, in that new temple. So there, there have, you know, this is a, a class of things that carry the same name, uh, and all are similar, but it's not just a thing. And I think that helps a lot for people to understand, oh, okay. So, you know, this is more of a category than a, you know, an individual, uh, fulfillment, but the prophecy you're talking about is in Daniel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, that chapter 12 of Daniel is all about the time of the end. Literally, the whole chapter is about the time of the end. It is the place in the Old Testament where you have the clearest statement of the resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. It's in uh, the first few verses of that chapter. It's the place where you get the clearest Old Testament view of the great tribulation uh, is in the early verses of that uh, of that chapter. It interestingly, has a really key clue in verse four, uh, which talks about the increase in human movement and knowledge in the last days. Uh, one of the clues we explore in the book, vividly descriptive of our, of our era, you know, uh, of exploding knowledge and, you know, increasingly uh, rapid travel. So all of that's in, in Daniel chapter 12. In the, in the verses 11 and 12, there's this very you know, mysterious prophecy uh, where it says that, um, you know, from the end of the sacrifice to the coming of the abomination will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who endures to the end of the 1,335 days. And it is a plum mystery. You know, I've, I've taught Daniel several times. I love the book of Daniel. I've read the, the commentaries. There are guesses at what it means, but there is nobody who really can tell you with clear definition 
what it means. When I've taught it in the past, I've had to say, look, you know, this is mysterious. You really can't know. Uh, it was hard to know what this what this might mean. But as I was studying for the book, as I was researching, I came across a view that that regards those verses in chapter 12 of Daniel as being kind of parallel to the prophecy of the 70 weeks in chapter 9 of Daniel. And without going into that prophecy too much, it, it, it basically says from the time that the command is given to restore Jerusalem uh, until the coming of the Messiah will be 69 sevens, which are thought to be seven-year periods of time, or what would that be, 483 years. And it seems pretty likely that uh, that prophecy predicted exactly the first coming of Jesus. I'm persuaded that it did, even if we can't be quite precise about it, because we don't know some of the, the dates perfectly. I think it, it likely did exactly predict that. And I think the prophecy in chapter 12 takes the same form. It, 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 it sets a beginning point. In that case, the chapter 12 case, it's the um, end of the sacrifice. It sets a middle point, which is the abomination, and then it points to some future date. So it has the same form of a beginning, an interval, and an end point. And in the book, I make the case that the beginning point for that prophecy would be the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, which put an end to the sacrifice in somewhere around 600 BC. It's somewhere between 605 and 587 because, and we don't know exactly when, but somewhere in that range. And that if you count forward from that event, 1290 years, you come to about 600 and I forget the date, 50 AD. And what you find happening is at a, that exact time, the Muslim shrine and the Dome of the Rock is being built, we think, right on the Holy of Holies on the Temple Mount. Uh, I make the case in the book that it fulfills, that, that shrine fulfills the definition of an abomination and that causes desolation, and that therefore it is the middle point fulfillment of that prophecy. What's really interesting then is if you count forward another 1,335 years from that point, you come to a date sometime in the latter part of the 2020s. Uh, and if the chapter 9 prophecy is a prediction of the first coming of the Messiah, it seems to me, given the context of chapter 12 and the similar structure, that it's possible that this prophecy in chapter in 12, 11, and 12 is a similar prophecy of the coming of this of the second coming of the messiah so it's pretty complicated and dense i try really hard in the book to make it understandable for people but uh, i'm really intrigued by the parallel nature between uh, those verses in chapter 12 and the verses in chapter 9 absolutely i mean certainly there's there's interest there that based on these numbers and kind of digging into those later chapters in daniel you know we see what we just talked about with the three B's and how we're nearing the finish line as far as we can tell related to those things. And it lines up very closely with what we're looking at with that uh, prophecy in Daniel, as far as, you know, in the, in the next few years. And so I find that to be pretty telling as well. Absolutely. No question. It seems like when you're discussing the abomination and such um, my friend, David, and I talked about this, you're, so what you're kind of saying is you're viewing this as um, multiple fulfillments. Uh, 
Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that's actually, I don't know if that's a unique view among Christians, but it seems to me that just based on what we understand throughout history, if we, if we look at our history and our, our biblical history more specifically, we can see these multiple fulfillments. And I think for some people that scared them away from wanting to talk about the great commission being fulfilled, the return of Christ, because, well, well, these things have already happened or and we yeah. get, we get caught in these little camps. Whereas instead of seeing as it a, as a broad <coughs> sort of multiple fulfillments that are leading to the end fulfillment. Yeah. I just pulled my Bible down as we were you know talking here and you know, I think it's in, um, you know, chapter seven that you see that first fulfillment of the abomination, you know, being prophesied. And it's a couple of other places in Daniel as well. Clearly it's in Revelation, you know, it's talked about there. And so those are not talking about the same thing. You know, uh, one is talking about this, this event in, uh, with the Maccabees in, you know, what was that 200, um, hundred and something AD or BC and 163, I think BC. And, the other one is, you know, at a date still to be determined in the future. And so it's going to be a different, um, it's clearly two instances of it. And I think there's probably four. Uh, I think when Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 24, I think he's talking about the one in 70 AD. He's talking there about the destruction of Jerusalem and talking about, you know, when you see that abomination. So I think these are, a, you know, a class of things that signal big events in the you know, the world of, uh, in the world of the Bible and are, you know, need to be understood as different mileposts for different, different things. Right. Well, coming back to sort of the crux of your ministry and what you do, I think it, it'd be great to hear if you're able to maybe share one of your favorite stories of uh, an unreached people group and, and their first receiving of the gospel and some of the cool things that are going on. It's amazing to think, isn't it, that after almost 2,000 years, there could still be places on the planet that nobody's ever been to to tell them about Jesus. It's, in a sense, it's shameful, but it also is a huge opportunity for our generation because literally we lack nothing to be able to get that done. We have more money than anybody's ever dreamed of having. We have technology, we have transportation, you know, we have. Uh, a huge worldwide church that's nearby all of these places. Uh, literally, there is nothing that we lack to be the generation to see this, this completed. Uh, and so, you know, I've really just captured the idea that why not invest my time and talent and treasure in trying to make that happen? You know, is it possible that we can send the gospel to every people group in the course of the, you know, a few years time. I, I really believe that that is possible. We've now in the finishing fund helped to send the gospel to something like 550 people groups in 60 some countries around the world. And, you know, we're now close to 400 where we've seen the first believers. So, you know, it's just kind of amazing how God's spirit is, is working. Um, one of my favorite stories is a, um, small people group that live in the mountains of a Central Asian country. I have to be uh, a little bit coded about exactly the name of the group and the place, but, um, right. and, um, you know, for security sense, but uh, we'll call this uh, people group, the Griege people, small Sunni Muslim uh, people group, few thousand people in it, living in a few villages, way, way, way up in the mountains, very difficult place to get to. 
it's not hard to figure out why nobody had ever been to tell them about Jesus. Um, we partnered with a ministry in early 2018 who sent a group of believers from the capital city of that country to go and be the first missionaries to the Griege people. Um, these people had only been believers themselves a couple of years. They were baby Christians themselves, but when they heard the opportunity, they wanted to do this. And so they began to pray and prepare for, for this. Um, their prayer was that as they approached the Griege place villages, that they would, uh, that God would introduce them to a person of peace. They had to wait. They couldn't go until spring came. They went in early spring. The road became passable. They finally made it up over there. Very, very treacherous road. They made it. They weren't even to the first village yet. And they see a man walking uh, by the side of the road. We'll, we'll call him Abdul. He's walking by the road with his cow and his newborn calf. That's a big deal. You know, he's now wealthier. He's got a second, second animal. They, they pull over and, you know, they've come to meet people and tell them about Jesus. So they introduce themselves and start talking to him about Jesus. And as they're sharing with him, he begins to weep right there by the side of the, the road. He's just weeping uncontrollably. They ask him, what, what's going on? Why are you, why are you so upset? And he, he confesses to them that he'd been carrying a burden of guilt and shame and that no one in um, his people group had been able to tell him how to be free of that. Uh, if you know Islam, you know, there's really no freedom from those things. There's just obedience and, you know, the, the hope that God will some, for some reason, forgive you. There's no real promise of, of salvation. And so they told him about Jesus, the, the, the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world and that he was the one who could take away his guilt and shame. And literally right there by the side of the road, he confessed the name of Jesus and became the first Griege believer in the history of the, of the world. He says to them, you've got to come tell my family about this. Come to my house, tell my family. They do that. His wife and his family have now become believers. And that house is now the site of the first Greece church in the history of the, of the world. Um, that is a dramatic and beautiful story, but it is not an uncommon one in what we see happening around the world. God's Holy Spirit is so ready for his people to show up and tell share this good news with people. Um, I think he's impatiently waiting for us to get to these last places to, you know, to bring in the harvest of those that he has prepared and called in these, in these places. Would it be fair to say that story is one of dozens that has happened through the umbrella of finish the finishing fund? Hundreds. Wow. That's incredible. Hundreds. Hundreds. Not always so dramatic, not always so quick. Uh, right. But but usually, um, you know, rem in, in, almost always remarkable, you know, uh, you know, just uh, incredible to think that God is still working in those ways. One of the we do a um, monthly call for our finishing fund donors um, call them partner briefings, and um, we'll have one of our ministry leaders on to talk about the work that they're doing. And uh uh, usually near the end of the interview, I'll ask, Hey, so just, I'm curious, do you ever see like signs and wonders in the work that you you're doing out there? And they usually laugh and say, of course we do. Uh, you know, we'll see healings. We'll see demonic deliverances. Occasionally someone will talk about someone being raised from the dead. And, um, 
you know, I'll ask him about that. You know, we don't see a lot of that in the West. Why, why do you think that's true? And he goes, well, I'm not sure why we don't, maybe we're missing it. It may be here, but you know, they generally will say, you know, for all intents and purposes, when we go to some village and some people group that nobody's ever been to with the gospel, it might as well be 48 AD in that place. You know, nobody, the, the, the testimony of the good news of Jesus has never been there. And so why would the spirit not do today in those places what he did in, you know, the book of Acts long ago in the places the gospel was breaking into there? And the answer is, he does do the same things. And so he is powerfully working. God's kingdom is growing at an astounding rate. It's expanding into places, you know, that we've never heard of here in the West. And, uh, you know, people are coming into God's kingdom in places who've never heard the name of Jesus before. It is, it, we live in a miraculous time. Well, that's a, that's a powerful word. I, you know, as we're kind of nearing the end of the interview, actually, that reminds me of something. You know, one of the things I want to touch on this season is just a for the church is the idea between skepticism and discernment. And I know one of the things um, I've, I've heard stories of this and, and maybe you can attest to it, but particularly among Muslim communities, maybe even some of the really hard to reach um, areas that many of these uh, Muslims will end up having these dreams and visions of a man in white or some kind of a encounter with Christ that uh, basically you know, either they're kind of prepared to meet a believer uh, who will share the gospel, or even through the encounter itself, they'll come to some understanding of G who Jesus is. And I don't know if that's something you've heard that's happened in the missionary community, but it's something I've certainly been hearing more of, it seems. Yeah, I am, I am absolutely convinced that those things are happening. I think they're happening often. Interestingly, everyone I've ever asked about this, and that would be dozens of people, um, Everyone I've ever asked has always said that the person who appears in the vision, when Jesus appears, he does not share the gospel uh, with people. He always sends them to a believer uh, to hear the good news. Um, the, uh, sometimes those connections are made in amazing ways. There's stories about you know, a guy waiting by the side of the road and a missionary will drive by and his truck will break down and he'll get out. And there's this guy sitting on a rock and, you know, I've been waiting here four days for you to come, you know, and I mean, like they've never seen each other. And yet, you know, the God, the spirit told this guy to go wait in this place. And, you know, he tells him the good news and he receives Christ. It, you know, they're not always like that, but some amazing stories, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm persuaded, uh, that Jesus gave the Great Commission to his church. And while he is hard at work helping us accomplish that, he has given the task to us to do. And um, he is not going to take that away um, you know, from us. And it's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm personally persuaded that you know, we have to finish this challenge before Jesus will come back. Because if he takes comes to take the church before we finished it, we won't have accomplished what he assigned us to do. And I just don't imagine that happening. I think he's going to enable us to accomplish it and then he'll come back for us. But until then, no, um, you know, he, we've still got work left to do. Yeah. You know, it's really an incredible privilege and an honor that, that the Lord would want to partner with us to bring that good news to every people group. I mean, it's, it's really extra extraordinary. It's kind of overwhelming at times to think about, but Casey, I, I think it's an indication of God's enormous love for us. I mean, is there any doubt 
that he could have done this faster and better not using us, right? I mean, right. you know, if, if you were looking around for people to use, it would not be people like us. We get tired, we get scared, we get frustrated, we quit, you know, we get distracted. Uh, we're not faithful. You know, I mean, you know, I, I think one day God is going to declare his glory by saying something like, look at this beautiful thing I built with these lousy tools, you know, and, uh, uh, and, you know, that will be true. You know, uh, imagine a carpenter building some beautiful piece of furniture using dull chisels and, you know, uh, and, you know, otherwise useless tools. And yet he shared it with us. Why would he do that? And I'm just convinced it's because he loves us so much that he wants to share the joy of seeing that happen with his people. And, I think we'll celebrate for eternity, you know, the privilege he gave us to be his his instruments in, in, in accomplishing this work that he determined to accomplish. Well, given the times we find ourselves living in, what is your message to the believer today who is seemingly overwhelmed by all the evil that is just swimming around us? Yeah, we mentioned, you know, 2 Corinthians 4, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen because what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. I, I think that's really an important one to not let ourselves be defeated by what's happening in what seems like the real world, but trying to take our view off of that and looking at the coming kingdom of God eternity and knowing that that's what's real. That's what's going to persist and endure. But another verse that I've really taken on for myself is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. We talked about that chapter, a lot of stuff about the return of Christ, the coming judgment in that chapter. And But in verse 11, Peter asked a rhetorical question. He says, so in light of all of this, in light of the coming judgment, what kind of people ought we to be? And he gives four answers. He says, we should live holy and godly lives looking for looking forward to and speeding the coming of that day. Some translations say hastening the coming of the day of God. And so, you know, if, if you want a handbook for life in the last days, I think it would be holy and godly, set apart, distinctive and different, and more and more godly, you know, fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, you know, characterizing our lives. We want to be people who are looking forward to the return of Jesus, not distracted by the, the craziness of the world and not distracted by the wealth and you know, uh, comfort of our current lives, but looking forward to the even better things that are coming after uh, Jesus returns. And then hastening its coming. Well, you know, how do we do that? How in the world can we hasten the coming of the day of God? Doesn't God already know when that's going to take place? And probably the answer is he does. But I think it ties back to what we've been talking about. I think the one clear thing we can do to hasten the coming of that day is finishing the task that he's given us to do, which is to get the gospel to every people group, to, you know, be accomplishing that, you know, the full number of the Gentiles coming into God's kingdom, and then the end will come. So that's what I've decided to do is, you know, devote myself to trying to get the gospel to these last people groups. But I think everybody can have a role in that by, maybe some by giving, maybe some through prayer for a few people, maybe going, being a, an active part of the work. But I think we should all be involved in seeing that, you know, mission accomplished of disciples in every nation. 
very quickly, do you, what what would you say as far as our progress? Where do you see us at? Uh, you know, you said maybe within the next year or two. Do you have kind of a, a, an idea on when you'll see the last people group reached or kind of a, a tentative perhaps uh, date or, or season that you're looking to that my, for my my prayer and my effort is to have begun in all the rest of the groups by the end of this year. I don't know if that's possible. There are some pieces of that that aren't evident right now. We're working on it, um, but we're down to about 150 left. And you know that would be we've 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 engaged more groups than that each year for the last four years. So um, you know just in terms of the number, it's certainly something that's accomplishable. So. It may not be this year. It may be you know, next year or the next, but um, you know, as fast as possible, and if possible, in 2022. Well, that's exciting to think about. Do you, do you have any closing remarks or comments for us today? No, brother. Thank you for a great interview and for a great conversation. You know, um, I I love talking about these things, and I hope some people will be encouraged by um, you know the learning about what God's doing around the world. He is working in a powerful way. Well, we are very very glad that you. Have given of your time today. Where can people find you and your ministry and uh, where's the best place for them to uh, get a copy of that book? Yeah, they can find the book at um, and then the end will come.com uh, and then the end will come one word uh, com, or just you can look it up on Amazon and uh, you can find out about the finishing fund at uh, finishingfund.org. One word finishing fund put together one word.org. Well, Mr. Douglas Cobb, thank you so much for joining us today on This Late Hour. Casey, thank you very much for having me on. I look forward to uh, our next conversation. All right. Thank you. God bless. Thank you again for joining us on this Good Friday to listen in on my conversation today with Douglas Cobb of The Finishing Fund. Be sure to check the show description for links to his ministry and for his book, and then the end will come. Next week, I will be having an informal chat with my friend David about his faith in the Orthodox Church. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you would like to support the show, please click on the ACAST supporter link or visit my Patreon page, which can also be found in the show description. If you have questions or comments, please send me an email at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com or visit our Twitter at Casey Knowlton or the Facebook page This Late Hour. Thank you so much for joining me for the second episode of Season 2 of This Late Hour. Stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time. God bless. You have been listening to this late hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. May God richly bless you.